Well, happy Tuesday, everybody. Happy Tuesday, Scott. Happy Tuesday, Patty. Yeah, so glad y'all are here. It's a sunny day here in Frisco, Texas. We are excited to be back. Yes, Resuming we are. our way through the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. So we're kind of... We're kind of we're kind of staying inside these days. We're kind of my coined my phrase COVID jumpy, you know, <laughs> just just staying cautious. So we are. there's just so much. And our daughter-in-law Savannah got so sick. I mean, hers was not one of the mild cases here and gone in five days. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, she Good was bad. sick as a dog. Thought she was better, then got worse again because then the nausea part came after she got rid so, of the sore throat so so it all that and how many friends have had covid just made us we're just kind of staying in yep we are and, but i got um, up and out and to the grocery store early but this you were morning. careful and you wore your n95 mask the whole absolutely. time right absolutely i can see the lines on your face oh, right thank you <laughs> and i'll cross my nose <laughs> but uh so. we got plenty of food home now yeah well that's good that's good that's good, that's good. scott literally hasn't left the house um since i would say like the two days after christmas we went out a little bit we ran errands now that's not exactly true well i would then i'm going to add the plus but we went to church last sunday and this past sunday yes and that's it that's all you've done is do my class even this this past sunday we worshiped online and then and then i did did my class class. but the week before you actually preached but i left the house this morning honey Oh, he had to leave because I'll tell you why. Oh, you don't have to confess. I will confess. He wants me to. <laughs> no, I don't. I thought I'd be so helpful yesterday and take apart our Keurig. And because, you know, I opened it up. I drink tea. He drinks coffee. And I could see all these coffee things in it, even though, you know, you run water through it. We do each time um, after he has coffee before I have tea. And I thought I was being so super careful, but when I put it all back together, it wouldn't work. I wasted three or four K-cups, and Scott got out the manual, and we realized, okay, there's no needle in there. I actually broke the needle off, but I couldn't believe it. I knew I hadn't run the, the disposal, so it's so creepy to put your hands in the disposal. I mean, Scott had to stand across the room when I did it. I was, sure enough, I was praying the whole time. I found that needle, but it was too broken to use, and we had to order a new one. So today we yes. were almost caffeine. Well, we would have been. Yeah, so I got up and I drove to racetrack. Right, we have we have racetrack right up the street. <laughs> so I drove there and got coffee because really, I I'm just telling you right now, if you want a decent class today, I need to have my coffee. So I did. I still have a little bit of it left here. In my little 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 teaser, it's called. Well, it's just called teas. Courtney gave it to me for Christmas. It's a little. It's a little. That's like a heat plate, you know. But it. But he really likes it. Turns off when you lift the mug off, which is really handy because I always used to leave the darn thing on, and I probably could have burned the house down or something. So the new Keurig is supposed to arrive tomorrow. I was really lucky. I had one extra tea bag that last time we went to IHOP weeks and weeks ago. I had an extra tea bag and I threw it in my purse, and that's what I got to drink. So yeah, and how was it? It was yum. Okay, yummy. So anyway, enough of us. And yeah. that you know what that taught me right then and there. What? No more cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Why clean? Why clean? Alrighty. All right, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered today on this lovely Tuesday, and we gather to study Your Word to, to come to the. Um, 
Gospel of John, and we just pray as we approach um, the crucifixion and the resurrection um, that you will guide us through this and help to open up these pages and so that we can come to know Jesus better and come to appreciate ever better the what you have given us in Christ, this, this enormous, unimaginable um, gift of, of grace that is embodied in Jesus. All that we pray, all this we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You know, I was thinking this is going to really help me and I hopefully help everybody else too, that now that we're in, you know, past January 1st and we're now into the New Testament in church every week, that we're going to have a little bit more background and in-depth knowledge before we get up to that. Things will kind of sync up yes. more and we'll be, it'll kind of all fit together. Well, I don't know how much it'll fit together because we're at different places, but yeah, yeah. you're right. There'll it be, it will, it will. It will. Alrighty. Absolutely. So. The cure killer is going to her side of the desk. <laughs> if you didn't hear that, she just called herself the Keurig killer. That's really pretty, being pretty hard on yourself there, Patty. I know. All you did true. was break this tiny little plastic part. If it weren't plastic, you couldn't have broken it. You're just saying that because I want to give up cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am with my, with, with my little coffee right here. Mm-mm-mm. That you poured your uh, racetrack coffee yes, in I, the I, cube I, cup. Yes, yeah, so it could so it could stay warm while I was working back here this morning, getting ready for class. Okay, so here's where we are. We have been in chapter ten. That's where we were last week. The beginning of chapter ten. The first twenty-one verses of chapter ten are the good chapter verses. Jesus is the gate for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. And remember I said last week that we need to bring that forward a little bit, that good shepherd has royal connotations. Um, the kings of Israel were to be good shepherds. And in Ezekiel 34, um, we hear the word of God that Israel's kings have been bad shepherds. And so God is going to step in and be the good shepherd and call his people home and redeem them. So God as the good shepherd the good shepherd as a royal idea um, is important to bring um, to the end of, of chapter of chapter 10 in particular. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. This is his, he's really in his final, um, he's about to get to his final visit into Jerusalem. Uh, before things really, I don't know, how could I put it, kick off. Before things really, really begin to move forward quickly, till before his hour comes. So, um, let's just go ahead and pick up really right where we were. I'll find my way to John chapter 10. Verse 22. Probably, there's probably, I'm sure in your, whatever you're reading and there's a paragraph break there and probably a section break um, because you're moving from these, these, the good shepherd section the, to the final portion of chapter 22. Of chapter 10. 
Thank you, Patty. Chapter 10 for C. Who, I mean, imagine how many times I would grow up if I didn't have coffee. <laughs> right? So, there we go. So then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem, period. So, all right, got to talk about that. So here's what the festival of dedication is. The festival of de dedication is Hanukkah. Hanukkah celebrates the rededication of the temple in 163 B.C. after the Maccabees take it back from Antiochus Epiphanes. So let me let me just pull up a couple of things here, okay? Um, that I I that I have. So we I did bring a map that we will use um, from time to time. I think I'll will save that. Um, Jesus is going to be teaching, of course, again in the temple courtyards. And in particular, Solomon's Colonnade, which is on the eastern side, which is the side we're looking from the east to the west. So it's the eastern side above the eastern gate. They call it Solomon's Colonnade. It's all pillared. It all provides shade. There's shade in four, on all four sides of the temple. Because, gosh, if you've been to Jerusalem, you know that the sun can be strong, even if the temperatures aren't high. So that's where Jesus is teaching. Now, the person we need to have in focus a little bit is this guy, Antiochus. He, is a, he was the ruler of Syria in 167 BC. He was Antiochus IV. He was the fourth ruler of this whole region, which was called Syria as far as the, they were concerned. This whole region, so he was Antiochus IV. Well, he had a very inflated opinion of himself. So he decided to make himself into a god. And he adopted a new name to go with that. He, made, he declared that he was now going to be Antiochus Epiphanes because Epiphanes is, means manifestation like Epiphany Sunday when um, uh, the baby Christ is made manifest, is shown to the, the wise men, okay? So he has Antiochus Epiphanes, and he decided that what he would do is to, um, let me get back to where I need to be, that, that he would try to stamp out Judaism. So he did several things. He, for, um, he passed a law forbidding the practice of circumcision. Well, you don't need to know much about Judaism to understand that that would be the end of Judaism. He, he um, passed laws forbidding most of the Jewish customs. He put a statue, a pagan statue, inside the temple in Jerusalem. Um, it's, scholars disagree about a statue of what. Some say Zeus. Um, some say Antiochus himself, which is, I don't know, it seems more likely to me. And the result of his attempt to, to stamp out Judaism in his empire was to trigger a revolt. And that revolt was triggered in about um, uh, 167 or so. And there was a family the Hasmonean family that picked up the nickname the Maccabees who rose up to lead the rebellion against Antiochus Epiphanes. 
and that after about three years of fighting, that rebellion was successful, and Judas Maccabee rode into Jerusalem, rode into Jerusalem as a really, in a lot of ways, as a savior, even putting around himself symbols of of, of messiahship. And when they, of course, the story is when they went to the temple, the the lampstand there was only enough oil for like one day, but it, they put it in, but it actually burned like all eight days, and that's why Hanukkah has the symbol of the menorah and all that stuff. So, for John's purposes, he actually gives us a really good time frame right here because he wants us to know that what's about to happen is during the Festival of Dedication, which is a freedom festival, a liberation festival, but also wrapped around kingship. Right, because it was wrapped around Antiochus Epiphanes, and then it was wrapped around the revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes, who made himself into a god. So maybe keep all that in mind for a little bit as we as we read through this, and you'll see that John is has a reason to tell us something specific about time, which he doesn't usually do. Right, I mean none of the gospel writers are really caught up with carefully explaining all the chronology of all the events. It's just not what they're focused on. They're focused on the good news. So, any questions about all that from anybody? No, not yet, Scott. From you, Miss Patty? Anything? Mm, no. Nope. Okay. Good. I cover that kind of stuff a lot in my classes, so very good. So, verse 22, Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. It's Hanukkah. It's in December. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. So again, very detailed, right? Just, 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 I, I love it when the Gospels get real kind of detailed, really sink down in, and you can begin to paint this picture. Um, it's just, it's just, it's just fantastic. Fantastic. So to, I'm going to put, put up the picture again, just because I want to. So here, there it is. There's the model in Jerusalem today. It's one-sixth scale. Um, it's enormous, the temple mount. The temple courtyards are enormous. Solomon's colonnade is on the side that you, looking at the picture, you'd call the bottom of it. And Jesus is walking through the shaded area, through the colonnades, right? And people are following him, of course, because that's what happens. He attracts a crowd. Has been about this a while now. Jesus was in the temple courtyards walking in Solomon's colonnade. Now the Jews who were there, this probably a pretty decent crowd, <coughs> gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. I think I speak for nearly all of us that there are times when we all wish Jesus would speak more plainly than he does, even in the Gospels. Would you agree with that, Patty? I would. Some of the parables, you know, they're a little tricky. They're tricky. You don't have someone explaining it to Jesus you. Jesus is not always clear, even about himself. And so I, I, I imagine, I think I know some reasons why he would not, but wow, okay, so I get this. So what he says to them is, in verse 25, I did tell you 
but you did not believe. You didn't have faith in me. The, and he's going to center it really around what he's doing. He says, the works I do in my Father's name testify about me. And that's a theme that Jesus has had in this gospel. That the works he does testify about him because the works he does are the works the Father does. As he pulls himself closer and closer to the Father. Right? So he says, the works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe, you do not have faith because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. We talked about that metaphor last week. I know them, Jesus says, and they follow me. Right? So this is all building upon the, the shepherd passages that we talked about last week where he's using exactly the same metaphor. Sheep and shepherds and listening and uh, the sheep following the shepherd. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Wow. So does he mean that he and the Father are one in what they accomplish and their purpose? Are they one in their works? Are they one in their being? But we're going to see that the Jews are getting their they're going to begin to understand what Jesus is saying. And I think this is the place where you, you have to let John's gospel help to interpret John's gospel. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. This deep, deep unity between Jesus and the Father because, I mean, in our life, we probably speak this way about a few other people in our lives. You could say, I could say, Patty and I are one, you know, in this. You know, we're, we're one. You're not going to pull us apart. You're not going to drive a wedge between us. We're one. We're together. We're totally unified. But does Jesus mean something more than that? I'm guessing he does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It would take the Christians a long time to work this out, right? To, to to look at the expanse of Scripture, and and to begin to work this out. But he goes on. He says again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. All right. So now they're ready to stone Jesus. What would they be stoning Jesus for? Blasphemy. So regardless of all our wonderings and the wonderings of all of the scholars that tackle John's gospel, the crowd, according to John, understands the depth and the significance of what Jesus is saying. That the unity he's talking about between himself and the Father isn't simply the kind of unity that Patty and I might have when we tackle the world together. No, there's something deeper. They're going to stone, they're about to stone him. 
for blaspheming. You know, maybe the doing of of a a person saying, "Well, what I do is what the Father does," having so much confidence about, you know, the godliness of their purposes being God's purposes. Maybe that's worthy of stoning. But I think there's more, and we're going to read on, and we're going to see that that is the case. And I, this is a big moment that I refer to a lot, actually. Okay, so. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you want to stone me? In other words, like, what have I been doing that, that deserves your <laughs> wanting to stone me to death? And he replied, we are not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you a mere man claimed to be God, or could be translated making yourself into God, or making yourself out to be God. Well, there we go. That's what Antiochus IV did, right? He made himself out to be God. Antiochus Epiphanes took on, made himself into the divine, which is absurd, first of all. It's not something anybody can do. I think 33, verse 33 is just so important because it helps us to see that the crowds around Jesus, they really do grasp what Jesus is saying. They can't handle it, right? They can't handle it, but they do understand. It's like when Caiaphas, we'll see, when Caiaphas stands up and tears his robes and declares Jesus a blasphemer, I don't care what the niceties of Jewish law are at the moment. Caiaphas understands the significance of what Jesus says about himself. And, and the crowds understand the significance of what Jesus is saying about himself. And I, for me, you know, I, you, you will run into people who will say, well, you know, Jesus doesn't really claim to be God. I mean, other people claim him to be God, but he doesn't. Well, first of all, he does. But just go to John chapter 10, 33. They understand what he is saying. They understand the significance of what he's saying. So they're going to stone him for blasphemy because he is making himself out to be God. And these people... This is worse than Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus is a pagan. In the pagan world, there are all kinds of gods and goddesses, and who cares whether there's a new one on the horizon? Nobody does. It's all just a big soap opera filled with major characters, minor characters, colorful characters, boring characters. Most of the gods and goddesses have all the weaknesses and strengths of humanity. In them, they're just like us. But you see, the Jews are different. They, they believe that there's only one God who chose them and who is acting through them to redeem the world, if they get it right. They're radically monotheistic. They're alone in their monotheism. 
they seem weird and crazy to the world around them because of their monotheism. And so now here is this man, Jesus, who they've been listening to him, following him for a long time now, who is making himself out to be God. And, you know, personally, I'm not surprised they pick up stones threatening to, to, to stone him because either it's true, which they can't really accept, or he is blasphemous. So, a big moment. All right. So here's Jesus' answer to them. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? And it's actually in the Psalms, because the law is sometimes used to refer to the whole expanse of sacred scripture. Is it not written in your law, in your sacred scriptures? I have said you are, quote, gods. And that is a line from Psalm 82, verse 6, I think. Yes. Okay? So, let's, let's just go to 80. Why don't we do this? Let's just go to Psalm 80. We got Bibles here. Let's go to Psalm 82, verse 6. Psalm 80. I'm trying to get my iPad to obey my every command. <laughs> How's it doing? It's not doing too great. So it's a very short psalm. Uh, psalm 82 is. So I'll give everybody a moment to get there. I'll take a sip of my, my uh, racetrack coffee. Which is quite yummy. They do a good job on coffee there. Okay, let's so it's because it's so short, we'll just read through Psalm 82, okay? God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. Now, who would those likely be? Well, I'll tell you why I think they likely are. I think it's the the psalmist is talking about all these pagan gods and goddesses. You know, as far as the world is concerned, it is Yahweh who renders judgment even on their gods. Their, their gods don't exist, but they think they do. So, so, but scholars do not agree. There is absolutely no consensus about what is meant by the psalmist using the word gods, who the gods are that the psalmist is referring to. Is it Israel? Is it members of God's royal divine council? Is it pagan gods and goddesses? Is it the kings who make themselves out to be gods? Don't know. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Right, so verse 2 is the judgment against these gods. And then God urges them, and instructs them, defend the weak, defend the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Right? That's what good shepherds do. 
Good shepherds do what is laid out in verses 3 and 4. Verse 5, they quote gods, know nothing, they understand nothing, they walk about in darkness, all the foundations of the earth are shaken, they're just lost. Verse 6, I said, you are, quote, gods, you are all sons of the Most High. Okay, but you will die like mere mortals, you will fall like every other ruler. So that kind of makes the gods seem like maybe they're, they're kings of the day when the psalmist is writing. The sons of the Most High. Yeah. What exactly does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't you like to know yes. what's in the psalmist's mind? All I can tell you is this is a psalm in which there's just really not any consensus about what, what the psalmist, who the psalmist has in mind. And maybe the psalmist wrote it that way. So verse 8, Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. You know, it kind of this is, this is one of those passages that reminds us that we're reading things that come from millennia ago, millennia ago, and why should we assume that um, we are going to understand every little bit of it? You know, that, that's probably hubris. So that is what Jesus, so go back to John 10. Jesus, as he so often does, he reaches into a place in Scripture and then he uses it. The really good thing is, exactly who is meant by the psalmist about the gods, that doesn't really matter for what Jesus is going to do. <laughs> Jesus is using the phrase, but it doesn't really matter who's being referred to. Pagan gods, kings, whatever. The Israelites themselves, whatever. So, Jesus, look at verse 34 of chapter 10. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, right? Can't set scripture aside. Got to deal with every piece of it. What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world, namely Jesus? So it's, a, it's then clear that what Jesus is doing, he's taking this little bit from Psalm 82, and he's using a rhetorical argument from the lesser to the greater. So he's saying that, you know, if he called these, these lesser beings, whoever he's referring to, God's, well, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? That's what Jesus is doing. You might make the point differently, but that's what Jesus is doing. He says, why then do you accuse me of being of blasphemy because I said, quote, I am God's son? Do not believe me. Do not put your faith in me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even if you don't put your faith in me, trust the works, trust what you see with your own eyes, right? That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Well, 
but the Father is in me, and I am the Father. That's why my works are his works. His works are my works. The Father and I are one. The Father is in me. I am in the Father. I don't think that paragraph would cause his opponents here to put down the, the, the stones. They're probably got yeah. their arms back and caught, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah. And then 39, another mystery escape. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Where did he go? And I do kind of view, and it's interesting, I guess I, I do kind of view it that way. We're all, all of a sudden, they're wondering, like, well, where did he go? Where did he go? Because he's just gone. But um, I think this is a very important passage to, to that sort of plays out the beginning of John's prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and Jesus is making it so plain to the people he's with that they get it. They get it. He's making himself into God. So, any thoughts or questions there? No. Before we go on? Nope. Well, that's the end of this morning's coffee. Okay, so, verse 40. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. And they said, though John never performed a sign, because remember, in John's Gospel, as opposed to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these signs are explicitly signs to Jesus' identity. That's why he takes what he is doing and binds it with the Father because they are signs to who he is. They are signs to his divine identity. They said, though John never performed a sign, because you see, John was not identifying himself with God. All that John said about this man was true, the crowd say. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Now, the place they're talking about is back where John was. Um, so let me... Baptizing in the Jordan, right? Yep. Let me go back where it's just a little bit here to my maps. Okay, so, you know, um, it's an area called Perea, I think, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Um, that that's where That's where Jesus is. Um, people are coming to him as they came to John. You can imagine that he is drawing, uh, continuing to draw a lot of attention. So I underlined Jerusalem on the map, and the bottom arrow points to a village called Bethany. Now it's a little hard to capture distances on this map, but Bethany's kind of a, I call it a suburb. <laughs> it's just on the other side southern side of the Mount of Olives. So it's a little bit southeast of Jerusalem. 
It's called Bethany. There are a couple of Bethanies in the Bible, but this Bethany is the home of a family that Jesus is really close to. Okay? So, back to me. There we go. There are a number of cities, right, that have Beth in the beginning. Yes, because it means house. House. House of... House, like, like Bethlehem is house of bread. Gotcha. Yeah, it just means house. Bethel is house of God. Okay, so let's look at chapter 11. Now, I we are not going to finish this story today, I don't think. I'd be shocked, but but, but we'll get into it. Chapter 11. Just remember, Jesus is across, Jesus is not in, he has left Jerusalem for a while. He's going to be back, but he has left Jerusalem. He's gone to the eastern side of the Jordan River, and, he's, he, and the people are coming to him. His disciples are with him. And we learn that now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. So, uh, John doesn't fill in all the pieces here. None of the gospel writers really fill in all the pieces. They all have their own story to tell, right? But if you begin to take all the pieces, this is the family, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, that Jesus is very close to. They're friends. They're, they might be kinfolk, so I don't think that word is ever used with respect to them. They live in Bethany. So, it's easy to imagine, if I were writing this in a novel or something, it's easy to, I would have, when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, I would have him coming to stay with them sometimes. Especially when Jerusalem is really, really packed and there's really no place to stay inside the city walls, that he would just stay with his friends, Mary and Martha, you, you know them, They're the Mary is the one who sat at, Jesus' feet while Martha was banging pots and pans in the kitchen, right? And Lazarus, their brother. And so he's close to them. Which, which factors into each piece of this story. So John helped, because there are, there are the most common name for a Jewish woman at this time was Mary. Most common by far, Mir Miriam, Mary, Marianne, various forms of it, but Mary, Miriam. That's the most common name by far. So, and even in the Gospels, you just keep meeting Marys, and it get, does get confusing. Um, so, John is going to tell us which Mary is we're talking about here right because he doesn't have the story of martha and mary of martha banging pots and all that stuff so he says this mary whose brother lazarus now lay sick was the same one who poured perfume on the lord and wiped his feet with her hair so what can we conclude well we can conclude that that is a very well-known story there would have been a lot of stories told and retold and circulating about Jesus. One that would be, was especially so, I think, would have been this story of the woman who 
anoints the Lord with perfume and wipes her his feet with her hair because it's so dramatic and it's so poignant and it so fits with the Mary we meet in the synoptics where Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet where she's not allowed she's not allowed uh, women were not allowed to sit at the feet of, of teachers of rabbis that, that's what that's probably most of what get, gets Martha wound up it's not just missing the chores in the kitchen. It is the fact that Mary is doing something that, that she shouldn't be doing. And that's what causes Jesus to scold Martha and say, you know, basically she's exactly where she should be. So, so that story of Mary anointing Jesus um, is, is, is very powerful. And I'm sure is the re that's the reason that it circulated, and John can use the story to identify which Mary he's talking about. So, verse 3. So the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, that leads some people to think that Lazarus is the disciple whom Jesus loved. I don't. I, I, I mean... I don't think so. I think it's the writer of the gospel, as do many others. But there are those who would say, no, I think it's Lazarus. Um, but Jesus is certainly capable of, of, of being close, especially close to more than one person. So the sister said word to Jesus, in any event, Lord, the one you love is sick. So they've I, it probably wasn't easy for them to even find out where Jesus was, right? I mean, there's no, like, GPS. There's no road maps. They live in Bethany, just a bit south of Jerusalem, south and east. Jesus is north of the Dead Sea, probably on the other side of the river, maybe. And, but... Somebody goes and somebody finds Jesus with his disciples and they bring him word that Lazarus is sick. The one you love is sick. Well, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, this sickness is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. So glory is showing the world something. So this sickness will not end in death. Instead, God is going to use this sickness to show the world who God is and show the world who Jesus is. Glory is a social term. It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it, which is exactly what will happen. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha, and her sister, and Lazarus. Like I said, he's close to the family. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days, which seems incredibly incongruous, right? What, what are you talking about? So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he, he loved them. So when he finds out that Lazarus was sick, he stayed, Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more, two more days, hanging out. I don't know, teaching, whatever. 
But, you know, just in the way it's written, it doesn't, it doesn't kind of fit, does it, Patty? Not really. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's the part that brings you up short. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, consequently, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, you think you're going to find out, going to read on, and Jesus <laughs> picked his stuff up and hauled it right down to Bethany. But no, he stayed where he was two more days. And we're going to find out why that is. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Judea. So they're going to return, but they have delayed themselves by two days. Jesus has. He's delayed them by two days. So they say, but Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there has tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. Because, right, the danger is there. Everybody's sensing that Jesus' hour has come, that this, that, that this clock is being wound tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And now Jesus is going to voluntarily return to the hornet's nest? He's going to voluntarily return to Jerusalem and the area right around it? Really, Jesus? Jesus said, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daylight will not stumble, for they see by this world's light it is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Jesus' vocation will go on. He is the bringer of light. He is not going to let the darkness of this world chase him off his mission, off his vocation. Jesus has to choose at numerous points when things get dangerous, or as people might say in our world, when things get hairy, to press on, to stay true to that vocation, to stay true to that mission and not be pushed off of it or pulled out off of it by fear or threat or intimidation. He is going to return to Jerusalem. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Now, let me read on. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. But of course, the disciples are just so dense sometimes. Really. Because, I mean, the Hebrew scriptures say that David fell asleep with his ancestors, right? It was a, a standard Hebrew metaphor for someone dying, is to speak of them as falling asleep. Maybe they can't grasp it that he's died because Jesus has wasted two days. Because remember, there are these stories or these occasions when Jesus has healed sort of long distance, right? Mm -hmm. The centurion comes to him and says, my daughter, you know, she's going to die. My servant's going to die. Please heal them. And so he says, ah, they have been, right? So that happens. The, these things that, that seem to be like this long distance healing. 
Maybe that's why. But uh, now John makes it clear, verse 13, Jesus had been speaking of Lazarus' death. But his disciples thought he meant, well, natural sleep, what we do every night. So then Jesus told them plainly, hallelujah, plainly, Lazarus is dead. So, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may have faith, you may believe, but let us go to him. So let's put this together a little bit. Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick. And he says to the disciples, he's not going to die. And let me put that in. Change that. This will not end in death. The choice of words is important. This will not end in death. This will not end in death. And then he waits two more, die, two more days. And then begins the journey back to Jerusalem. And why does he why did he wait? So that Lazarus could die. I think, you know, it, it has to be that this would be so um, striking and so earth-shaking. If you would have just healed his friend long distance or even left after the two days and healed him. We know this story because the man was what we call dead, dead, dead and dead, to say right. it the way you say it. Right. And, you know, it, I, that's why we all know this story. Even non-Christians know about Lazarus. Right. And I think that that had to be the reason why. It just made it much more... Um, Jesus said, yeah. this is going to end in death. Why? To glorify God. Uh, yes. And to, that I may share in that glory so that you may believe. Right? right. And so... It's it's a challenge, but you have to try to read it as if you don't know where the story's going and put yourself in the shoes of the disciples who would undoubtedly be very confused by the delay. Why did you delay? Mary's going to be very confused. What? Why? 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 Lazarus is dead, Jesus says. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. And their heads would just be spinning. That would, that would, would like make, because Jesus is the healer, right? Jesus is the one who gives life, not sit around and waits for death to arrive. So they, they're afraid. The disciples are very nervous about going to Jerusalem. But Jesus said, we're going. And verse 16, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, um, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So what does Thomas mean? What does, what does he see? Does he see that Jesus is walking into the lion's mouth when he returns to Jerusalem? Is he speaking in some spiritual sense? Hmm. Thomas, his name simply means twin. He has a twin. Didymus means twin. 
Thomas and Didymus are basically, Thomas is an anglicized version of the Aramaic word Didymus, which means twin. So he's Thomas the twin. He's twin the twin. <coughs> so Thomas <coughs> says to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. <coughs> now I choose to read it. that Thomas understands that they are walking into the lion's mouth. And just as Peter will pledge to die with Christ, this is a similar kind of pledge. <coughs> okay. So let's go on. And now on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Okay, so let's talk about the burial practices and the, the, how they did this. Until the advent of very modern medicine, Nobody could really be, I mean, there were many cases where people couldn't be sure that somebody was actually dead. They couldn't look at brain waves, you know, they're just, they're, they're just instances of people who seemed to be dead, but then came back. That's why really until the middle of the 19th century, even in America, there were people whose bodies were buried in coffins that had a little string that led to the surface where there was a bell. So that if they were down in the coffin, and they hadn't suffocated, I guess, they could ring the bell if they came back, you know, came back to life, came, you know, regained consciousness or whatever. So you kind of have to put yourself in a world where that happens. So what the Jews did, somebody wasn't really understood to be dead, dead, and dead until four days had passed. Right? So it was really three days. So um, you had a three-day period when, when it was kind of like, are they really or not? Now, obviously, if someone had had their head chopped off or uh, a spear stuck into their heart or their whatever, that they would get that. But a lot of people just died, you know, kind of a natural causes like we do now. And so they were, had this little, had this practice. So Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. So now we begin to grasp what Jesus has been doing. He waits two days. In that space, Lazarus dies. Jesus travels back. I'm guessing they don't race back. And when Jesus arrives, now Lazarus has been in the tomb four days, which means that his body has been wrapped up in cloths. The villagers have gone to the family tomb of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They have there's a stone that would be that would typically be round. Um, in a little gutter of some kind that would be blocking the entrance because you want to keep wild animals out 
in particular, wild animals. And so they would roll the, that stone away and they would carry Lazarus in and lay him on a stone bench that's cut out of the um, side of the cave or something like that, where the expectation being that Lazarus's body will lay there until it rots, till it desiccates, and then they would come back in in a year or a year and a half or two years, wherever it is, and they would take his bones and put them in a bone box and store that bone box with the bone boxes of other members of their family that are stored in the same cave. So that's like the whole deal. So Lazarus has been rolled up in the cloth, dead, lying in this tomb now for four days. He's really dead. He's really dead. He is dead, dead, and dead. You know? And and that's an important part of the story because Jesus doesn't want people thinking that, well, he wasn't really dead. No. He's dead, dead, and dead. Now, verse 18. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Like I said, it's kind of like a suburb, right? And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home in the house. See, th this fits with the synoptics because Martha is kind of the take charge person, right? She was the one making food, banging pots and all the rest of it. So she goes up to Jesus you can tell that they're close, right? This is Jesus she's talking to. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And I, I, I do see it with a little bit of an edge to it. Why wasn't he there? How could Jesus have let this happen? He's been doing these things all over the place. And he lets his beloved Lazarus die. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But then she goes on. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Which shows us what? the depth of Mary's trust in Jesus, the depth of her faith in Jesus. She utterly trusts Jesus. She is utterly confident in Jesus. She believes in him. She trusts him. She faiths him. Utterly. Even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And so Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And she answers, I know he will rise again. I know that, Jesus. I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Okay. So, the belief among most Jews, not all, it's not monolithic, the belief among most Jews of this time is that when God brought about 
the last days, the end days, God's big thing, as I keep calling it, okay, that would include the resurrection of the dead, the bodily resurrection of the dead, because God had made a covenant with these people, and they believed that God would keep that covenant even to the extent of bringing them embodied to new life. And so they believed that in the resurrection of the body, they believed in the resurrection of the dead. And indeed, that became part of the Christian framework of understanding what was happening around them with Jesus. What did Jesus' resurrection mean? For the Christians, Jesus' resurrection, which was bodily, because he Luke 24, he ate fish. It was bodily. They... they um, understood it to be the first resurrection in the great resurrection of the dead. The same resurrection of the dead that, that Martha's talking about. The Christians just came to believe that the rest of us will follow someday when Jesus returns. But yes, it began with Jesus' resurrection. And that resurrection of the dead, it is the, when you say the Apostles' Creed and you get to the last line, or so, and you say you believe in the resurrection of the body, you're talking about what Martha's talking about right here. The bodily resurrection of the dead. So, of course, she says, well, okay, I know he will rise again. We're all going to rise again, Jesus. But that's not really what I'm talking about, right? She's concerned in the moment because her beloved Lazarus has been taken from her by death. I mean, death is the enemy. La yes, Lazarus will be will, will rise one day, just as you know we all will, just as Charles Stokes will. But Charles isn't with us anymore right now, and that's a great sadness and a great loss. We are separated. Louise is separated from Charles right now. Martha is separated from Lazarus, and it isn't what she wants. Of course, it isn't what she wants. She loves him. So knowing that. He will rise again one day is not the comfort to her, <laughs> you know, that that she wants, that she's speaking of when she says, I know that God, you know, through God, you can, you can, you can, God will give you whatever you ask. She has something more in mind, something else in mind besides the resurrection of the dead. Okay, Patty, yes. is that clear? Yes. Okay, Absolutely. how am I doing? Very good. Okay. So, I need my glasses. I don't know why I try to read this without them. Jesus said to her, oh, another I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. Wow. I am the resurrection. Jesus is the life giver. Life came into this world through Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life, he said. He will not only be resurrected himself, he is the resurrection. He is the life. He is the life, the life giver. He is the one through whom all life came into existence. To go back to John's prologue, to go back to Colossians chapter 1, to go back to the letter to the Ephesians. Yes! These are such powerful words. I am the resurrection and the life. And of course, this is another I am statement. I am being God's name. 
surely for John, surely for you and me, we hear in this phrase another claim by Jesus to be God. Because if you stopped any Jew on the street in Jesus' day and said, who will resurrect the dead, what would their answer be? God. God. They would, might think to themselves, you know, the name of God, they won't utter it because that would be profane. But yeah, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, who is the giver of life? If the, What would they answer? God. The God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sure enough. The God who revealed his name to Moses at the burning bush and said, my name is I Am. And now Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. It isn't merely that Jesus is someone whom God is empowering to do good things or empowering to bring God's word or empowering to rescue Israel. It is more. He is more than that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I am the resurrection and the life. So, does anybody there get, get that, really? The, the depth of that? I don't think so. I don't think so. When Martha says, God is, I know God will give you whatever you ask. That's different than uttering the phrases in the first words of John's gospel. Or even these words. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. The one who believes in me, who puts their faith in me, will live even though they die. Because, you see, the Jewish belief in the resurrection of the dead was that death doesn't hold people. We're, we're dead for a time. It might be a long time. But it's still only a time. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, by putting their faith in me, by trusting me, will never die. So, so that is this. He isn't saying that people don't die. Jesus will die. Paul's died. Everybody's died. The question is, as he said earlier in this chapter, is that the end of the story, right? When he says death will not be the end of this, is death the end of my story, Patty's story, your story, Paul's story? No. Jesus' story? No. 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 Just as Jesus was resurrected, so shall we all be resurrected. So he is forcing Martha to stay on this for a moment, at least, about the great resurrection of the dead and the the renewal of life and the and the 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 re-embodying of everyone who has died that constitutes the great resurrection of the dead. And he says to her, "Do you believe this? Do you believe?" 
Martha, that down the road, when God does God's big thing, that Lazarus will be raised, and you will be raised, and you and your brother will be united, that these things you want now will be yours. If they're not now, they will be one day. And she says, yes, Lord, I believe. And then she goes on to say, I believe a lot more than the truth of the resurrection of the dead. She says, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So she's now moved to this whole additional plane about who Jesus is. So she moves from the resurrection to the identity of Jesus. She seems like she has it down way better than the disciples that are following yeah, there every you go. day. There you but go. Maybe it's because she knew him, you know, on the, such an intimate level that he was with her family. Yeah. See, there's all kind of things that aren't recorded in the Gospels, but she does. She she gets so much of it, right? And it's striking to me that she says this about who Jesus is in, res in response to a question where Jesus basically says, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Do you believe that death will not hold us, right? Do you believe, um, and, and part and parcel of that is putting your faith in Jesus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who faiths in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by faithing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So he does focus it upon himself, but she does, her, her answer is just not a simple yes answer. Like, yes, yes, yes. I believe, I believe. She moves on. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So, wow. So, when we come together next week, Martha is going to go grab Mary. Because remember, Martha is the one who charged out there to what? Confront Jesus, basically, I think. You know, I'm sure in a kind, loving way, but she's, she's, she's a take charge person. So she goes out to confront Jesus. Mary stays back in their home. Jesus, you got some explaining to do. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So Martha, so when we come together next week, um, they're going to go, they're going to go, go get Martha, go get Mary. So, okay. Like, wow. I'll turn this, this way. So you're actually incorporated Thanks. into this. You're so welcome. Thank you. So we'll pick up right there next week. Okay. All righty. So glad that you were with us today. And I hope you have a good rest of the week. Stay safe out there, healthy. And uh, hopefully we'll see you on Sunday. Uh, again, we probably will not be at church. We'll be watching it online, but we will be there for the 11 o'clock class. Yes, we'll 11 be there for the 11 o'clock class. And we it will be online and side. we'll be there. <laughs> we'll just kind of come in from the side. Yes. And, and hopefully this this variant is going to pass through pretty quickly. Yep, that's so the plan. That's our plan. Anyway, let's join in prayer. Okay. All righty. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this group. We thank you, God, for... Scott's knowledge and helping to explain these scriptures better to us. We thank you, God, for this beautiful day. We thank you, God, for watching over us and taking care of us. 
And we pray, God, that you would continue to do that, along with our families and our friends, that you would be there, Lord, that we would feel your presence every day, that we would be seeking your presence every day. We pray, God, for your wisdom and your discernment in our life. Whether we're doing small things, big things, big projects, we need to have your will, Lord, in our plans in order for it to be successful. So we, we do pray, God, for your wisdom. We pray, Lord, that you would hold this group close as we move through this month of January. We pray, God, again, that you would help keep us healthy and um, hopefully free from uh, any kind of sickness. We pray, God, for our church family, too. We know that a lot of friends and actually a lot of staff have COVID, and we're just praying, God, for your healing hand on all of them. We ask you, God, to just continue to watch over and bless St. Andrew as we continue to try to be better disciples, Lord, to the rest of the world. Lord, we lift up all these prayers to you today. We pray them all in the name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, everybody. Bye, everybody. Adios. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.